Hello, this is Joyce Chang, Chair of Global Research, and we're here to discuss our latest JP Morgan perspectives focused on the outlook for China's financial markets. China's financial markets have experienced substantial volatility, along with outflows and underperformance since Russia's invasion of Ukraine in March of 2022. We've witnessed a notable decline in passive investment, and in 2023, we've seen the first significant slowdown in foreign direct investment flows, which have fallen to a 26-year low. This is the first um, significant year of outflows that we witnessed, and it does raise questions on whether we are beginning to see some important shifts in the supply chains. Well, if we take a look at the repricing of China's risk premium, this is a structural story, not just a cyclical story. Beyond the geopolitical considerations and the focus on national security, China's regulatory policies and its increased debt burden are growing sources of investor concern. There are uncertainties around the regulatory measures which have damaged domestic private sector confidence and also have had implications that are far beyond foreign sentiment. Taking a look at China's debt level, it's risen to 282% of GDP at the end of 2022. Now this is lower than Japan, but it is higher than the developed market average. And at 95% of GDP, China's public debt is similar to that of most advanced economies, and it's much higher than most of the emerging markets economies. This year alone, we think that China's debt to GDP ratio will increase by 12 percentage points, with the government um, leading this increase in leverage. We do see risk of foreign financial um, spillovers, though, remaining relatively muted. And this is because foreign participation in the markets has declined and remains quite low. Our estimate for foreign holdings of China's A shares remain relatively small at about 5%, while foreign holdings of China's government bonds are just around 25 to 3%. So to expand on these points, I'm very pleased to be joined by my colleagues from the China Economics Equity and Credit Teams. Very pleased to have Hai Binju, our China Chief Economist, Carl Chan, Head of China Property Developers, Catherine Lei, Head of Greater China Bank Research, and Su Chong Lim, our Head of Asia Credit Research. So Hai Bin, let me turn to you to start the discussion. Um, are the fears of a hard landing for China justified? I mean, we have seen additional support measures out of the government. So are we seeing signs of stabilization? Can you walk us through your forecast for this year and 2024? And how are you seeing the long-term potential growth for China? What are the key drivers that you're watching? Thanks, Joyce. Uh, so yes, we know that the China's uh, post-reopening recovery has been a bumpy process. After encouraging starts uh, in the first quarter, the recovery lost momentum and the growth fumbled from 10.4% uh, in Q1. Uh, to a negative 0.6% in second quarter, uh, in quarter of quarter SAR term. Uh, the main source of weakness uh, includes a double dip in the housing market activity, uh, sluggish performance in the private investment, and a weaker than expected uh, consumption recovery. Uh, meanwhile, deflation and the use of employment problem stand out. On the other side, there are some bright spots in China's economic activity, such as new energy, new energy vehicles, manufacturing, infrastructure investment, and the personal contact and travel-related consumption and service activity. They have been outperforming. Uh, the situation seems to improve uh, recently, uh, particularly with uh, much stronger than expected economic activity in August, and also the intensified policy easing actions uh, since mid-August. 
this led to our uh, first upgrades uh, in the GDP growth forecast uh, since May. We now expect the Chinese economy will grow 5% for this year and 4.4% for next year. Uh, on policy easing, uh, let me emphasize on three things. First, uh, we do not expect a bazooka-like policy stimulus. Instead, policy easing tend to be piecemeal and incremental, just like we observed uh, recently. We saw a collection of uh, small easing measures in fiscal, monetary, housing, and trade areas. Uh, second, the impact of policy easing since mid-August has not been reflected in the data yet. Uh, it will take some time, uh, though although we expect the policy impact tend to be modest. Uh, a third one, uh, also most importantly, we strongly believe that uh, the adjustment in the policy framework or policy direction is more important uh, than the magnitude of the fiscal or monetary stimulus. Restoring the confidence of private entrepreneurs will need critical assurance and uh, on equal treatment between SOE and non-SOEs, and also stable policy environment for the private sector. Addressing the uh, deflation problem will need policy bias to shift from production investment to consumption and domestic demand. Also addressing use unemployment problem will need a pragmatic adjustment in the government policies in high and middle income, uh, high and middle services sectors. Uh, many of them has been facing regular headwinds and therefore leading to a net job losses in the service sectors. Uh, so uh, this is actually what we uh, need to observe rather than say only focus on the fiscal and the monetary stimulus. Thanks so much for those insights, um, Ivan. Well, just to follow on question, we're hearing a lot about China's Japanification risk. Um, what are the similarities and the differences? And do you see a risk of a balance sheet recession in China? Yeah, Joyce, there's always interest uh, to draw lessons from the past. And in China's case, uh, drawing lessons from Japan's experience in the 1990s is important. Uh, there are many similarities between China nowadays and Japan in early 1990s. Uh, both are facing major change in demographic structure, i.e. population aging and the declining birth rate. Uh, both countries are facing housing market uh, correction, which is not only cyclical, but also structural. Both are facing significant financial imbalances, uh, that is high debt, uh, but the risks tend to be manageable as debt is mainly domestic and domestic saving rate is very high. Uh, both countries run large trade surplus with the US and leading to the bilateral trade dispute and the reduced reliance on the exports. Finally, both are facing the problem of economic slowdown, weak domestic demand, and the deflation problem. However, uh, there are also important differences between China nowadays and Japan in the early 1990s. Uh, some factors in favor of China, some actually is worse for China. Uh, the advantage uh, for China is that uh, the different, uh, in the difference in the economic development stage, in particular, a uh, much lower urbanization ratio in China nowadays compared to Japan in 1990. Therefore, China can maintain higher growth than Japan in the 1990s. Uh, China's domestic market is also much larger uh, with ample supply of engineers, and uh, uh, this can help the efforts to promote productivity increase. Uh, in addition, probably a bit non-consensus is that we think that China's housing price overvaluation is less severe uh, in China nowadays compared to Japan in the early 90s, uh, particularly uh, tier three, tier four cities account for 
uh, more than uh, 50, 60 percent of China's national housing market, uh, but where the house price income ratio or housing affordability is much more reasonable. Uh, and the main problem is uh, supply in this area. And this also explains the China strategy uh, in housing market correction. Uh, they're trying to protect uh, the house price, uh, but to tolerate a dramatic crash in the volume. Uh, now, the disadvantage for China uh, is also obvious. China's GDP per capita is lower than Japan in the 1990s. Uh, China is still facing the middle income trap risk, uh, while the debt level is already very high. Uh, the policy room for China nowadays is also smaller, uh, in that public debt level is higher than Japan in the early 1990s. And the policy rate uh, is already much lower compared to Japan in 1991. Uh, in addition, uh, population aging has happened faster in China's case. Uh, but more importantly, actually, external challenges are more severe for China. The U.S.-China relation, uh, the U.S.-China strategic competition is comprehensive, uh, not only focused on the trade disputes, but has expanded to technology, financial, and other areas. Uh, also, uh, globalization was in golden era in 1990s, but uh, it has observed major changes in recent years, especially after the Ukraine war. In the acceleration in the global supply chain relocation, which posed a big challenge for China. Uh, overall, uh, China is facing similar challenges to Japan in the 1990, but uh, the future developments uh, could be quite different. Uh, we expect China's potential growth uh, may slow down to 3 to 4% in the coming years, uh, from 10% before the global financial crisis and 6% a few years ago. Thank you so much, Haiben, for laying the macro framework for us. I'd like to now turn to Carl Chan and really delve into what's happening in the property sector. So Carl, exactly what steps are the government taking to support the property sector? And do you think this policy easing will be enough? How are you gauging the effectiveness and stabilizing sentiment around the property sector? Sure. Policy easing sure is a welcome first step, uh, but I would say that it is still hardly a game changer. Currently, we are seeing more relaxation in mortgages and home purchase restrictions in top-tier cities. We believe that they will help stabilize sentiment for a while, as at least they can unlock some upgrade demand, uh, which was previously suppressed. However, we believe the core issue in the Chinese property market right now is the low home buyer's confidence on both home price expectation and the outlook for income and employment. This is not something which can be easily fixed uh, by simply removing certain restrictions or improving home buyers' affordability. If you look back in the last easing cycle in 2014, during the year, most cities eliminated home purchase restrictions one by one, uh, but sales during the year were actually still pretty weak. Although we saw a notable improvement in 2015, we argue that the market was more supported by cash compensation in Shantytown redevelopments, which contributed 15 to 20% of home demand in that year. If we exclude the impact of that, actually sales in 2015 will still be down by uh, a little bit. This shows that policy easing alone may not turn things around, but of course, it at least better than no action at all. Thank you so much, Carl, for those insights, because this is just an ongoing issue that we're clearly going to have to monitor. Um, you know, one thing that has really stood out and Hyben talked about this was that you know the government has supported um, home prices in contrast to what happened in Japan. Can you walk us through your home price expectations and how does this easing cycle compare to what authorities have done in past easing cycles? I believe that we have to break it down by tiers. 
For tier one cities, we expect a low single digit increase in home price over the next six to 12 months. It will be mostly driven by the recent policy easing. However, we think government will still be keen to control any excessive home price growth. So we think the growth will likely be controlled at below 5%. For tier two cities, we expect they will stay flattish. And then for low tier cities, we think that the home prices may still be under pressure and further down by five to 10% due to oversupply and under demand. For the current easing cycle, I believe there are two major differences with the past one. Number one, uh, the objective is different. This time around, the objective, we think, uh, is mostly to support the downside and prevent further deterioration. However, triggering a strong recovery is unlikely to call objective. After all, we believe that the core um, or overall policy framework will still be homes are, not, are for living, not for speculation. Number two, um, the approach is different. Last time, the easing magnitude was stronger and more top-down. This time around, we believe that easing will be rolled out more gradually at local level. Despite some nationwide gesture or directions, local governments will still get to decide the best way to relax the policies according to the local market situation. Thank you so much, Carl, for bringing us up to date on the developments in the property sector where we see the default rate still continuing to rise. I'd like to now turn to the banking sector and turn to Catherine Lay. So Catherine, um, when we take a look at the financial risk from the local government financing vehicles, there's been a lot of concerns that this risk could become more systemic. How are you looking at the bank's ability to absorb the risk and what is the risk of a systemic default? Thank you, Joyce, for the questions. On systematic default, um, the simple answer is no, that we do not expect systematic defaults of the LGAV debt in our base case. But that is uh, with the assumption that central government will intervene to prevent defaults of the LGAV debt. And let me elaborate on this. We estimated that the total size of LGAV debt, uh, including bank loans, bonds, and shadow banking borrowings, to be roughly about 56 trillion RMB, and that is equivalent to about 8 trillion US dollar at the end of 22. And this is equivalent to 46% of GDP in China. Um, and among that, we expect banks' exposures to be roughly about uh, 7 trillion US dollar, um, or equivalent to 12% of banking assets. So even if a fraction of the LGAV default, that will be of serious consequence to the bank's earnings and capital. Without the interventions uh, by central government, default risk is high in our view. For example, our analysis shows that 10% um, of the LGAV debts have interest coverage ratio below one time, and 80% uh, of the LGAV debts uh, have cash to short-term debt ratio below one time. In a layman's language, that means that 10% of them may not be able to even service the interest payment, and 80% may, uh, may not be able to repay uh, the principal of the debt. Um, so uh, on top of that, um, the financial position of the local government is also deteriorating. Um, for example, we try to assess the combined debt servicing capacity of the local government and the LGFEs, uh, and our analysis shows that the combined interest coverage ratio of the local government and LGAVE is only about 1.1 time um, in 2022. Um, bear in mind that we usually consider uh, interest coverage ratio below one time as a red flag. 
Um, this means that the central government will have to step in to prevent uh, LGLV defaults. Our analysis shows that the central government still have the capacity to do so. Um, the question is how? Um, referencing to the past experience, the central governments did bail out LGAVs by uh, using proceeds of provincial government bond issuance to repay uh, roughly about two thirds of the LGAV debt uh, back in uh, 2015. Um, during the period of 2015 to 2018, that this kind of debt bailout program happened. Uh, but since then, uh, the LGAV borrowing continued to increase, uh, and this time of bailout program leads to concerns of moral hazards. This time, we do not expect a large-scale blanket bailout, but instead, uh, we expect a basket of solutions, including some local government debt swaps, uh, similar to what happened in 2015 to 2018, but in a smaller scale. Um, banks may also be asked uh, to restructure some of the LGAV loans, such as rolling over the debt at a lower rate. Um, so to your second questions, uh, how do banks absorb this risk? Uh, we believe that the LGAV risk may not result in asset quality concerns, but rather a drag in earnings and ROE as uh, rolling over some of the LGAV loans at a lower rate will lead to weaker net interest margin and also lower effective loan growth for banks. Thank you so much for those um, insights, Catherine, because it does seem like the government is going to focus on avoiding um, contagion, and they're very aware that that is a risk. Um, you know, I'd like to actually now put this together with what's happening in the property sector. What are the financial risks from the recent property sector liquidity stress? And particularly, we've had um, a lot of headlines about Country Garden. Can you bring us up to date on what you're seeing with respect to the Country Garden situation? For now, financial risk from property sector liquidity stress is contained. As long as China is able to prevent uh, risk spillover from developers to other sectors. Um, before we go into details, I would like to put things into perspective first. Um, the total developer debt uh, onshore is roughly about three trillion US dollar. And among that, uh, banks holds about two thirds of this, contributing to roughly about 4% of banking assets. However, aside from this, uh, banks are also exposed to real estate markets via other loans, such as like mortgage loans and loans collateralized by properties. And the direct and indirect real estate exposures is close to 30% of banking assets. And up to the first half of 23, banks are witnessing a rise in bad debt ratios only in the developer loans. Uh, but asset quality for mortgage and other collateralized loans remain largely stable so far. Um, this is primarily because that while property transaction has been done by 40% from the peak in 2020, property prices have been relatively stable, partly due to price control by the government. And banks LTV, which is a loan to value ratio on mortgage and other loans is roughly about 50% um, on average. And we have not seen spillover of liquidity risk uh, from the developer loans to other property related loans. And thus we believe that it is paramount for the governments to ensure stability of property prices. On Country Garden. Country garden on a standalone basis is unlikely to trigger financial risk for the system, as country garden's uh, total interest bearing liabilities at the end of 22 is roughly about 
0.1% of um, total credits, uh, what we call the TSF in China. However, uh, it is essential to monitor um, the spillover risk to its peers, uh, the housing market, and then even to LGAV loans. We identified uh, three channels of risk transmissions, and each will result in different consequences. Uh, first uh, is the contamination risk to other good quality private developers. And among banks' developer loans, uh, we estimated that roughly about 40% is to state-owned or so-called SOE developers. 20% uh, is to high-quality private or POE developers. And the remaining is to POE developers which are already in distress. Um, and Country Garden is in the bucket of high-quality POE developers. And if other companies in that bucket start to default, um, financially, um, the NPL ratio of developer loans, which is currently about 4.5%, may double. Um, but the impact on overall banks' earnings is still limited. Um, so this is uh, the first part. The second uh, channels of risk transmissions is that um, if the news of default by high quality POE developers um, further weakens home buyers' confidence and leads to further declines in both property sales and price, the falling home prices may reduce collateral values of the bank loans. And so in a terrorist scenario, uh, we may see spillover risk uh, to mortgage or other collateralized loans, um, which accounted for roughly about 24% of banking assets. We call this a terrorist scenario because steep price drop is not in our base case given potential government intervention and that China has a, a closed capital accounts. And in addition, uh, major banks may not call their loans even if the loan to value requirements in the loan confidence is breached. The third uh, channel of transmission uh, is spillover risk to LGAV exposures via shadow banking or even the bond markets. In our previous discussions, we mentioned that uh, it may be challenging for some of the LGAVs to repay principles, uh, and they have to roll over the debt in order to prevent defaults. Note that aside from borrowing from banks, um, the LGAVs also borrow from the shadow banking markets and also the bond markets. Um, so if defaults by the high quality POE developers lead to reductions in risk appetite by the bondholders and the shadow banking lenders, say, for example, um, the high net worth individuals in China, then we may see spillover of liquidity risk uh, from developer to LGAV debt. To the banks, I think this increases risk that they may be asked to fill the funding gap when liquidity supports from bond and shadow banking markets to LGAV's receipts. Um, in short, if Country Garden uh, is an idiosyncratic event, then the risk is limited to the financial system. But what we need to watch uh, is how the government uh, is going to contain the spillover risk and stabilize the sentiments overall. Thank you so much, Catherine. Let's now turn and take a look at the Asia credit markets with Su Chang Lin. So Su Chang, we have seen over $100 billion of China property bonded debt that's defaulted over the past two years. Um, and are we um, at the worst now? Has the default rate for China property peaked? What are your expectations for the default rate this year and in 2024? And what would give you comfort that the default rate has peaked and that we've kind of passed the worst? Thanks, Roy, for that question. Uh, we do expect that uh, 
default rate for China higher property market was still very elevated this year and next year. Uh, obviously, this is going to be moderating from the extreme level we have seen in 2021 and 2022. Uh, before we look at the default rate for this year and next year, I think it's good to recap uh, what we have witnessed over the last uh, two years. Uh, over the last two years, we have seen close to 100 billion of higher bond defaulting. And that means that uh, we are talking about close to two-thirds of the China higher bond have defaulted. Uh, so as a result of that, we've seen the total bond stock has shrunk from about 150 billion uh, two years ago to about 60 billion today. And that's the num number we are dealing with uh, going forward. For this year, we still expect about 10 billion of the higher bond will be at risk. And next year, probably another 5 uh, billion plus will be at risk. And to put that number in perspective, we are still talking about a default rate, which is going to be in the high teen level. Uh, for this year and next year. Uh, if you look at the trading level of Ch China higher bond, those are trading somewhere between 30 to 40 cents for those who are not at the immediate risk of default. For those who are more at risk of default, I think the trading level is closer to 10 to 20 cents to a dollar. And that shows you that the market is still expecting that the default rate to stay quite high. Another, to, another thing to also to take note is actually uh, some of these names that uh, we're expecting to default over the next six to twelve month period uh, were considered to be a uh, survivor. Uh, this is not really in the radar screen of the default for most investors. Another disturbing trend is also that we have seen uh, government-owned uh, private develop, uh, developer uh, actually have defaulted. So previously, there's only a privately owned uh, developer that's more at risk. Now we start to see this problem spilling into, uh, over to the government-owned also. Thank you so much, Su Chong. I want to turn away from the default rate for a moment and discuss the credit conditions for China's property markets and how developers are accessing funding. What are the sources of funding right now? It's a good question. I think this is really what is the reason why we are expecting that the default rate to stay high for China property bond market uh, in this uh, for this year and next year. Uh, the credit condition is still very challenging. Uh, you look at the in terms of how they are funding their project, it's about 35% come from self-raised funding, which could come from equity or the uh, capital market, either the onshore bond market or offshore bond market. Another 35% is come from pre-sale, and another the remaining 30% is equally split between mortgages and bank loan. So you can say that the bank loan is probably flattish. I think banks are, I mean, have been encouraged to lend more. Uh, to the sector, but I think most banks are willing to roll over what they have, but they are not stepping out to lend more. The only area that probably they are willing to expand more would be mortgages. Uh, but mortgages is also just like pre-sales, it's tied to uh, uh, the property sales, which is have come down easily by 30 to 40% uh, from the um, two years ago. So from that perspective, this is still there. It's going to be very challenging for a lot of developers. The, but the most critical part for them is the sell-raise funding. And uh, you know, you look at the capital market assets for the US law bond market, that is still sharp for the uh, property developer as a whole. Uh, and property developer used to raise close to 50 billion from the US law bond market per year. And this year, there's only managed to raise 1 billion, less than 1 billion on the market. And you look at onshore market, I think things is not uh, any much better. Uh, on the surface, in terms of run rate, in terms of uh, they still manage to raise, property developers still manage to raise close to 
um, you can say 40 billion equivalent of uh, from the onshore bond market. And that run rate is very flat compared to what they have raised in 2021, 2022. But underneath that number, you actually see a big diversion between the issuance by the state-owned developer and also and the privately owned developer. Well, state-owned developer has still managed to assess the bank, uh, the onshore bond market. The privately owned developer have virtually no assets at all. If anything, they have still have to re, uh, fully repay all the bond that's coming due uh, in the onshore bond market. And looking into 2024, I think we still have about 10 billion of offshore bond that's coming due. And on top of that, there's another 7 billion equivalent of uh, uh, onshore bond that have coming due. So altogether, there's close to 17 billion of funding need that they have to fill, find, find new sources to fund that. And that is why I think the, the credit conditions for a developer is not going to improve anytime soon. Thank you so much, Su Chang. So putting this all together, we see China's financial markets remaining you know, under considerable stress, even as the government has stabilized the macro situation. Thank you so much to Haiden, Carl, Catherine, and Su Chong for joining us today and sharing their insights. And thank you to all of you for joining us today on JP Morgan TV.